on a sinking ship. Things are getting worse, and the worse they get, the really the better it is for us as Christians because it means what? Jesus is coming back. It's going to get worse, and if it all goes to hell in a handbasket, then guess what? Praise hallelujah. Jesus is coming back, right? And that's been our mentality. It's a defeatist view of history. And I want to say as Christians, uh, listen, we need to hear something, that if you read Jesus, the Messiah's actual words, he didn't seem to hold that view. He said things in John 17 like, uh, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that we are a city set on a hill and we're to be light to the world. Jesus tells us to be what? Salt and light. Salt. And we think, like, salt? Like that kind of salt tastes good? No, salt in that culture was a preservative. You didn't have fr- like, like a fridge to keep stuff. If you wanted to pack something and make it last a long time, you would use salt to do so. And so salt was a what, guys? preservative it preserves stuff so jesus tells us to the world christians you be salt to the world you be a preservative to the world and you be light to the world and we've had such a defeatist view of history that things are just going to get bad 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 and the worse they get the better it is for us as a church it means we're getting off this rock and I, I, I use the example in the first one we opened up with in eschaton i use the example i said picture for a second like we were like on a battlefield you're on a battlefield right you're going to fight a war and the, the enemy's across from you and they're, they're heaving and panting and their weapons are ready, drenched in sweat, big beards. Awesome, right? And we have beards too, just the men, okay? And, and ja- we're ready to go and you're on the battlefield, you're ready to fight and your, your commander is there and he's ready to send the troops in and he's yelling, he's like, we're going to fight a battle tonight. And you're like, yes. And every man's like thrilled. You got goosebumps, you're ready to go. You got your swords ready, you're ready to fight he's like are you all ready and everyone's like yeah picture braveheart right mel gibson's riding across the front right face paint all that jazz good and you smell of mahogany and leather men all right we're ready to go into the battle and you are ready you're you're amped up your adrenaline's pumping and you're ready to go and your commander says are you guys ready say yeah and he goes all right ready we're going to enter this battle and i want to let everyone know there's absolutely no chance ever that you are getting out of this battle alive. And I want everyone to know, I give you 100% sure guarantee that there is absolutely no way we're going to have victory in this battle. Ready? <laughs> Go! And the troops are hanging out behind the commander. Excuse me, <laughs> just a moment. Uh, what did you just say to me? Now picture that as the scene, the current scene on the eschatological landscape We're being told by Christian pastors and men of God who are great men of God. Don't get me wrong. I have heroes that hold to that view of eschatology. It's what I was ultimately as a Christian raised in. But I want to say we have wonderful men of God who hold, I think, to a newer view of eschatology and a view of the end that was so foreign to our forefathers and the believers that were before us. And and I I think um, it's something to think about when you have pastors telling you, hey, it's just going to get worse. It doesn't matter. What you do in history has no real effect in history now granted listen closely you need to know this christians we all agree on the essentials amen we're totally together we're good on all the essentials who jesus is there's one god none before none after god is trinity father son holy spirit jesus is righteous he died for sinners he rose from the dead salvation is by grace through faith in him alone 
The Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. We are in agreement on all the essentials. As a matter of fact, did you know that every Christian is in agreement on all the end stuff too? Jesus is coming back and he's coming back as final judge and king over the world and everyone's going to be raised, both the just and the unjust for a final resurrection. And everybody agrees that sometime in history, at the end of history, Jesus is completely victorious. We go into the eternal state. We all agree. But the real question is this. Are you ready? Picture this. Jesus came, accomplishes redemption. Here we are. History's moving along. And everybody agrees that when we get to the very end, Jesus comes back, final resurrection. We all agree, right? But here's the question. This part, what happens here from his first coming to his final coming? What happens here is the big question. And I'm going to say something, that over the last 200 years, we have been absolutely inundated with the eschatology of pessimism. That ultimately the world's just going to get worse and terrible and worse and worse and worse. And finally, Jesus comes back to a defeated church. And, and would it excite you if I told you that the Bible knows nothing about that? Would it excite, would it excite you or whet your appetite if I told you that the Bible has a view of history before he returns for the final resurrection that is utterly incomplete? Would it excite you to let you know that the most quoted verse in the New Testament from the Old Testament is Psalm 110, where it says, he must reign, Jesus, until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy is death. Now question, watch, think through this for a second. It says the Messiah was going to come and he was going to reign until all his enemies were under his feet. And the last enemy would be death. So if you think about it, he's reigning now. Amen? Do you agree? He's reigning now. The New Testament authors quote that verse a lot. Now, what happens before death is defeated? What is put under Jesus' feet before death is conquered? What? All his enemies. Not some kind of, sort of, little bit of enemies all of his enemies. And that's what eschaton is really about. Listen, we have to transform our thinking back to the word of God, which is our final rule of faith. Amen? Even if you come in here right now and you're like me and you've held to sort of that, this popular view of eschatology, I want you to know none of this should, be, should feel like an attack on you at all. I'm really asking us to go to the scriptures as a community of God and to say, what does the scriptures say? And that's what we're supposed to do. And really the whole aim here is simply this. Ready? If we go to the scriptures to see this, then we are completely transformed by it. And you know what it does? It not only causes us to glorify God by speaking the truth about history, but it actually transforms our lives. Because you know what? There's plenty of opportunity uh, to look at stories about people who hold to an eschatology of pessimism. The church is going to be defeated in history. Jesus is going to come back to a beat up church. And finally, when there's there's scores of examples of people who have actually feared bringing children into this world, because what's the point, right? If the world's going to get worse and worse and worse, who would want to bring a child into that? But listen, if we go to the Bibles to say, what does the Bible say about history? Do you know what it does? It begins to have us think about something like this. What am I doing now for the glory of God and the expansion of his kingdom? When I see an issue coming up to the world, I look at it and I say, how as, as the people of God can we be salt to this? How, how do we put an end to this with the gospel? 
When you look at social stuff that's a just complete collapse, Christians don't just step away if they have a, a, a biblical view of history and say, well, just hand it over to the devil because Jesus is coming back any moment. And you're wishing yourself into rapture. But you actually look at stuff in the world around you and you say, how can I get the gospel into this situation? The problem of drug and alcohol addiction, the problem of the breakdown of marriage in the family, the problem with abortion in our nation. As a Christian, when you understand the biblical view of history, you actually say, as the kingdom of God now, how do we answer this with the gospel? And how do we put this under Jesus' feet? How do I put the issue of abortion? How do I put Planned Parenthood under Jesus' feet? Do you get the point? You start thinking in those terms. You start looking at your kids and you say, how do I raise my kids as as, as messed up of a parent as I am? How do I raise my kids to know Christ, love Christ? And actually, you're thinking 10, 20 generations after you. You start thinking about grandkids and great, 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 great grandkids and the legacy for the gospel that you leave for them. This changes everything because, not because it's just, hey, we want to be the, the optimist. Is the glass half empty or is it half full? It's asked this question, what's biblical? Does the Bible teach us that we're defeated in history? Or does it teach us that Jesus is king of kings, Lord of lords, and that, ready? The whole earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. The Bible says that he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth. What was Abraham, guys? Think about it. Abraham was the forefather of our faith, right? Kids, maybe some kids in here know the song. The kids know the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father. You got it, right? No kids? No? Good? Say, say, you know that? Imogen, you know the song? Right? Good. My kids know it. What's wrong with you guys? Um... But you know the song, Father Abraham and many sons. We, we sing that in like, uh, you know, the kids' Sunday school classes and everything else. Awanus, you know, Father Abraham had many sons. That's because that the covenant God had with Abraham was that through Abraham's seed, which we know is Christ, he was going to bless all the world. And ready? All of Abraham's descendants would be like the sand in the sea. Let me tell you what. That's a lot of sand. It's a lot. And he'd be like, he would have descendants more numerous than the stars. Does this sound like defeat to you, what God told Abraham, that he'd have descendants like the stars of heaven or like the sea, the sand in the sea? You see, that's the picture of of the victory of the Messiah in history. And I'm going to say that the whole picture in the Bible gives us something more beautiful, more optimistic than we have imagined in the last, say, 50 or 100 or 150 years in our culture. Something gloriously massive that God was doing in history. It's so much bigger than we've thought. And this whole series is meant to be something that would not just cut at you, but would cause you to be renewed. The glory of Christ and God's plan for history is massive. And it's awesome. And you're a part of it. Okay, so ready? Where have we been? Is the question. Where have we been? And if you missed these ser- this series, I, 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 I do fear one thing right now. Here's what I fear. My fear is this, that with the kids in the room right now, and the new adults in the room right now, new brothers and sisters, families that are here, my fear is that I will use terminology that you will not understand and you will check out. Don't. I want you to know this stuff because I want you to be educated and I want you to know what what people say and and what's the big picture. And so a couple things, ready? I'm just going to give you the main views of Christians, wonderful men and women of God. Here's the basic views. Ready? Number one, you've got something called premillennialism, historic premillennialism. And let me just give it to you simply, ready? I'll try to give you a picture here. What it says is that Jesus came 
okay? And then what's going to happen now as history moves along, Jesus is going to finally return, generally after a great time of tribulation and really brokenness and defeat. He's going to finally return and set up a thousand year, literally 1,000 year, a thousand year reign of Christ physically on earth with buildings and things to touch and everything else like that represent kingdom stuff for Messiah. And then he will return after that thousand years for a final resurrection. So picture it, Jesus comes, history moves on, he returns to bring a thousand year literal kingdom, and then he finally returns for the resurrection after that. There's the final resurrection. The next view, that was premillennialism. Everyone say it with me, guys. Next is amillennialism, like atheist, without theism, without God. Amillennialism. Before, say, fairly recently in our history, 125 years or so, I think it's about the time period, there was no distinction between amillennialism and what we believe, postmillennialism. It wasn't until fairly recently there became a distinction. So there's a lot of things about amillennialism that are pretty stinking awesome, okay? They're awesome. Now, amillennialism teaches that Jesus came, and guess what? He brought the kingdom that was promised. Amen? Amen? He brought the kingdom. Nothing stopped him. Really brought it. Not kind of brought it. Not, well, yes, but no. But really brought the kingdom. And that amillennialism means that there's no earthly, earthly thousand-year literal reign of Christ on earth. That he is reigning now and that he's really reigning now, he's really king now, but there's probably going to be a period of real tribulation and and really defeat before he finally returns for the final resurrection. You get that? Jesus is king, amen? He really brought the kingdom that was expected, and that there's going to be a time of trouble and defeat before he finally returns for the resurrection, the final resurrection of you and I. Then you have what's called dispensational premillennialism. Now this gets a little crazy. Dispensational premillennialism is unique, and if you were to talk to a historic premillennialist that believes that Jesus is going to come back instead of a literal thousand-year reign on earth, if you ever called them a dispensational premillennialist, they'd probably knock your hat off your head. They don't like to be called that. Dispensational premillennialism teaches that Jesus came to bring the kingdom, and he basically wasn't allowed by the Jews. They rejected it, so he couldn't bring it. So it was promised to come in that time, He wanted to bring it, but the Jews didn't accept it, so Jesus couldn't bring it. And what happened is, because he couldn't bring it, what's going to happen ahead of us is there's going to be, generally speaking, a secret rapture where Christians basically disappear out of their underpants. Clothes just drop to the floor. You vanish, poof, and you're gone. To be left behind with the unbelievers for a seven-year tribulation on earth where an antichrist figure appears. He makes a covenant with the people of Israel. Then he breaks that covenant three and a half years into it, three and a half more more years of tribulation to when finally Jesus returns to set up a 1,000-year reign of earth on Christ. And after that, another battle. And then finally is the end for the final resurrection and state and everything else. That's a lot. Okay, don't trip out. Okay. Postmillennialism says this. Jesus was to come and he was the king. And when he came, he would bring a kingdom. And the kingdom is not an earthly that tears up, breaks up, and, and, and goes away. It's a real kingdom that is something Jesus said, don't think you're going to be able to say, see here, see there, for the kingdom of God is within you. It was a real kingdom, the kind of gospel 
kingdom, gospel of the kingdom that Jesus referred to when he came in. And it says that Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, was preaching, ready, the good news of the kingdom. How come we don't talk like that anymore? Christians, do you talk like that? When we talk about the message of Jesus and salvation, do we tell people, hey, this is the good news of the kingdom? We've the, the fact that Jesus comes in preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he says weird things that admitted as a Christian in our culture, he says things you're like, I don't know, I don't know what that means. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like, what do you mean? Where? And we're asking the same question the Jews were asking. They were saying, where's your kingdom? Where is it? Where is it? Your king, where is it? And Jesus says to him, don't think anybody will say, see here or see there for the kingdom of God is within you. He says things like, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you has if i do this then this and he did he did cast out demons by the spirit of god which means what he brought the kingdom and the bible clearly taught that the messiah had to bring the kingdom during the time of the fourth kingdom which was rome we're going to get into that today and here's the big picture of post-millennialism are you ready jesus is king for real and he's seated now he didn't kind of bring the kingdom he brought it and he's really king. Those passages that refer to Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords, it means that. When it talks about that Jesus or the Father has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son, that's for real. In Revelation 1 where it says that he has made us a kingdom of priests, that's for real. It really happened. We're really his kingdom. He really reigns now. And history, according to the Bible from old to new, was this. God was, through this Messiah, going to destroy the works of the devil, all of the curse, as far as it was found, that God was going to basically transform and renew all that was broken because of our sin. And world history, when Jesus has brought this gospel and this kingdom worldwide, we'll be able to say every tribe, tongue, nation has come to serve him. The Bible says that all the nations are going to stream up to the mountain of God and that this Jesus, this Messiah is king and he's king and he has dominion and that all the peoples are going to come to him. And at the end of history, I think we'll be able to say that the vast and greatest majority of all of mankind was saved because of Jesus. How's that sound? pretty awesome you're like prove it (laughs) but watch this dr greg bonson wonderful man of god huge impact on my thinking listen closely i want to share this with you he said that when someone presented post-millennialism to him the first time that jesus is going to be victorious in history before he returns the gospel is going to penetrate all cultures and change everything he said when someone first told him this is what he said Man, I wish that was true, but it ain't. You know why? Because you hear a story like that and you say something like, that sounds too good to be what? True. And I want to say something else. Do you know what Old Testament believers before Jesus came would have said to this glorious promises about this Messiah coming who was going to put an end to sin and make reconciliation for iniquity and this promise of this new covenant was coming where God would put his law in your heart and he would indwell his people. Do you know what they would have said in the Old Testament before Jesus came? <laughs> You're telling tales out of the schoolyard. That's too good to be true. In the Old Testament, imagine an Old Testament believer being told, little boy, little girl raised in synagogue, 
Imagine yourself being told by your parents, hey, one day a Messiah is going to come and deal with our sin. Everything that God promised to Father Abraham is going to be true. The glory of the Lord is going to fill the entire earth. This Messiah is going to make it to where there's no more sin between us and God. And we're going to be able to have access to God and a new covenant. Can you imagine what they would have said? They would have said, that's not what the newspaper looks like. Looks like God's pretty defeated. You know what? Looks like God's temple is gone. During the Babylonian captivity, the Jews would have said, yeah, all these promises from God about this Messiah coming. Hey, hello? Hello? Daniel's like hanging out of the lion's mouth right there, right? Basically, right? We're stuck in Babylon. Are you not listening? Are you not looking around? There's no temple. There's no priesthood. Where's all this stuff that you're promising of new covenant and freedom from forgiveness and sin and all? Where's it all at? And, and here's the problem is that people, we have this problem where we only look at the circumstances around us and we go, nah, doesn't look like it, right? Did you see the newspaper, Pastor Jeff? You're talking about Jesus reigning and conquering the whole world with the gospel. Do you read the newspaper today? You see who our president is? Right? You look at the world around you, you say things like that. You start looking at like, you know who's ruling right now in Afghanistan? You know what's going on down there? But the problem is, is this, is we're not supposed to get our view of the future and what's actually true through sight and what's around us. We're not supposed to read current events into the Bible and say, well, I guess Jesus can't really have victory over this. Let me tell you something. Listen, if this story in Scripture about God being glorified through his full transformation of the world through this Messiah, if it sounds too good to be true to you and you think, I don't know if God can really do that, I think you're forgetting what a miracle it was for God to save you. Think about the fact that we forget that. We go, well, I know he can save me, but I don't know about the whole world. I know he could transform me, but I mean, that guy? That guy? It's, it's, we're forgetting that it was a pure miracle when God opened your eyes and changed your heart. The problem is, is that we don't think we're very bad. And we think, well, it's, maybe it's kind of easier for Jesus to save me, but not that guy right? This is the story of a mighty savior who brings a miracle in people's lives. You know, I want to say one for those of you guys that are new, you can maybe check out for a second, but for those of you guys have been here for a while, listen, if you're reformed, I don't understand how any self-respecting reformed person is not post-millennial. If you believe that God is sovereign over every detail of salvation, why is it hard for you to imagine that this God could save the whole world, that he could transform whole cultures? If you believe that God really directs salvation and he brings it, Jesus opens eyes and turns hearts of stone, then why is it hard for you to believe that Jesus could do that to the whole world? First foundation, number one. History is going somewhere. So, sorry, foundation number one, God is sovereign over history. I'm not doing these again. I'm just telling you what they were. God is sovereign over history. Number two, Moses wrote about Jesus. We talked about in the beginning of the Bible, the first five books are written by whom? Moses. Moses wrote the first five books. Kids, ready? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And when Jesus was here, he told the Jewish leadership of his day, you know what he said to them? He said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. How trippy is that? Guys, think about it for a second. About 1400 years before Jesus came, Moses is writing revelation of God about Jesus. That's a bold claim for Jesus to say, listen, you read Moses, you should believe me because he wrote about me. 
So the law talks about Jesus. This is the third foundation, this is really something you need to listen and grab. If you forget anything in this message, don't forget this. Third foundation. Israel wanted an earthly king like the other nations. First Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 11. Israel wanted another, wanted a king, an earthly king like the other nations. And in first Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 11, listen closely. God says that was sinful. Why? Because God says, what about himself? He's their king. So Israel is saying, well, we want a king like the other nations, like a dude on a throne. We can touch his face. We can see his robe, right? We see the king. We like all the other nations. We want the guy, the king. And guess what? God says it was sinful for them to desire that because what? He's their king. And you know the glory? I'm going to fast forward now. The glory of the gospel of the kingdom is this. God's people were saying, we want an earthly king. God says, all right, I'll give you one as punishment. Have Saul and David. Doesn't work out so well, does it? And so when God gives them a king, you know what he says he's doing to them? Punishing them. When Saul and David are there, God was pro had providence in that, and he was good to them in that. But you know what? He was working on his ultimate plan, which was to what? For God to condescend himself, to take on flesh. God the king becomes man. He pays our redemption, rises from the dead, and takes his position on his throne so that what was always true is now in fact true and understood by them. I have always been your king. I am your king forever. God becomes king in the gospels. So that was a foundation you need to know about because it's something that does come up later. The fourth foundation is we did this, the victory theme in the Psalms. I can't do it for you today because we'd be here till 10. The victory theme in the Psalms, you need to go back and you need to listen to the message I did. We went through a, a sort of a spattering of verses in the, in the book of in the Psalms to talk about the victory theme in the Psalms. Put it this way. Psalm chapter 2. Are you ready? I'll give you one. Psalm chapter 2, incredible. It's incredible. It's quoted in the New Testament as about Jesus. And you know what it says? It's crazy. The Father has a discussion with Jesus in the Psalms, in the Old Testament. How do you like that for Trinitarian? The Father's talking to the Son, and you know what he says? The Father says to Jesus, listen closely. Listen closely. He says this to Jesus in Psalm chapter 2. He says this, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the question I always ask is this, do we honestly think that Jesus forgot to ask? The Father says to Jesus, Ask of me, and I'll give you all the nations for your inheritance. And, and wouldn't, you, wouldn't you expect Jesus the king to be saying, hey, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It means holy be your name. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do you like that for a comprehensive view of history? That God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven and that the Father's name would be holied throughout the earth? Or how about this? Jesus, Matthew 28. We always quote the verse because we think about missions. But are we thinking about the real implications? Jesus says this in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Stop, pause, 
hold, listen. We like to think as Christians in this culture, well, Jesus has authority there, but apparently not here. But can I, can I suggest to you with a humble heart that you think through it? All authority in heaven and where? On earth has been given to me. And so he says this, therefore, what? Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Let me ask you a question. Does it sound like Jesus asked the Father? The Father says, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Jesus goes to ascend before he leaves. He tells everyone, all authority is mine, heaven, earth, go. Get all the nations. And he doesn't say, very, this, is a, this is excursus, very important. He didn't say, go get people to make some decisions for Jesus. He says, go make what? Disciples, teaching them what? To obey. Sounds pretty comprehensive, doesn't it? But amazingly, listen, that the victory theme in the Psalms is an incredible thing to look at. But the fifth foundation, and this is where we're at today, is this. The victory theme in the prophets. Are you ready? Go to Isaiah 9. Sword drill. Who's there first? I won because I already had it written down. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. This is a path often quoted at what time of year? Christmas time. This is one of those Christmas verses that's on your Christmas cards. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. This is important. Are you ready? This book is written about 700 years before Christ. Kids, children in the room. If you're in this room right now with your parents, listen. You need to know about Jesus, not because mom and dad love Jesus, but because, ready, God has given you life and he calls you to bring glory to him and to know him and to enjoy him forever. So this story I'm telling you right now is so relevant for you. This is a savior that was talked about long before he ever came and you need to hear that. So everyone, listen, this book is written about 700 years before Christ and this is what it says. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For a child will be born to us a son will be given to us. That's interesting. Think about it. Child, son. What is that? Human. This is where it gets compelling. About 700 years before Christ. Son, child, got it. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Okay, that's messianic. We expect that. This Messiah king is going to come and he's going to govern. He's going to be in control of all things. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Wait, hold up. Pause. I felt in son, Isaiah. That's a human. Why are you referring to this coming Messiah, this human, this child, this son as the mighty God? Are you seeing it? People wonder like, well, how do I show someone that Jesus is God? Well, you don't start in the New Testament. You start in the Old. It says that God is coming. Consider the fact that this mighty God is going to take on flesh, become a son, become a child. And what it says is very important. Listen. The father of eternity. Question, Christians, people of God, listen, you got to answer this. Who is the only eternal being according to the Bible? Only God. And it says this one who's coming is in fact the eternal one. And then it says, Prince of Peace. And we go, oh, who's that? Jesus. Now watch. It says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it from, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now watch this. This is important. We often quote the first part and we forget that second half because it, it confuses us, doesn't it? The first part we go, oh, that's Jesus. He's the son. He's the child. He's God in the flesh. He's the father of eternity. But look what it says. It says very clearly, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. But this is important. Verse seven, there will be no end to the increase of his government and peace. Guys, listen, watch this. There will be no end to the end. What is that? That's progressive. That's growth. It's not a cataclysmic event where all of a sudden things are going a certain way and all of a sudden the kingdom arrives and it's like, boom! Cataclysmic event. It's of the increase of his government. It's going to grow. It's going to flourish. And watch this, watch this. Wouldn't you know it? When Jesus comes in Matthew 13, guys, how does he refer to the kingdom? Mustard seed what? To large tree. A seed so small you could barely see it in your hand that when it's full grown, it becomes what, guys? A tree and all the birds of the air can nest in its branches. And then again, most guys maybe don't understand this, but ladies, this is for the ladies. Jesus always has like one and then, oh, for the ladies. No, I'm joking. This isn't. <laughs> he says, leaven in a lump of dough. Maybe that, I'm just, I just told me that up. That was, you know. Leaven and a lump of dough, Matthew 13, right after this mustard seed to large tree, Jesus says, it's like leaven and a lump of dough. Now, guys, think about it. When you ever see dough rising, put a little bit of yeast in dough, what happens to it? It rises. What does the yeast do? It permeates the entirety of the loaf. When Jesus referred to the kingdom, what did he say? Small to large growth. Small to large expansion. And wouldn't you know it? Isaiah already said it the increase of his government, there would be no end. It's going to grow. It's going to flourish. And if you say, if you sit there right now and you think to yourself, but Jeff, look at all this brokenness. Jeff, look at all this poverty. Look at all this. Look at all that. I want to say this. That's because the gospel of the kingdom needs to get into that. And if you say, I don't know. I don't know if it can happen. I don't know if we're going to make it. I want to say this. Ready? Take a deep breath. Do you know why? Because this passage says something very significant. You got to look at it. Look at the end of verse seven. It says, if you ever wanted to know if it's going to happen, you need to look at the origin of where it's coming from. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. How'd you like to have the God spoke and billions of galaxies came into existence? The God who said, let there be light, and there was light. The God who said, giraffes, booyah! Baboons, booyah! With weird butts. <laughs> right? God has a sense of humor, because that's just strange stuff right there. Right? Awesome, beautiful birds. Little babies. I got, I got to uh, give birth. No, stop. Pause. <laughs> I got to help a dog birth puppies Friday. And it was so amazing. Crazy. Just think that the God who created you speaks and it happens and he's in control of everything. Think about the fact that this dog that I, 
I got to word this correctly. Okay. This dog that I helped give birth to its puppies. There you go. On Friday, never had puppies before. First litter. It really was. Never seen a dog do it before. And it was so funny. When we got up, I, I looked to see, okay, what are we going to look for? How do we do this? I, and I started seeing she was panting. So I was like, I think she's sure going to labor now. It's time for her to have puppies. And then next thing you know, she humming when I was calling her and she looked like something was really wrong. So we got her in this little pool thing we had set up for her, got her all ready for it. She has no idea what's coming. And then her, this, this water came out and she's like, Oh, what's that? You know, she's tripping out. I was like, it's cool. Just relax. And next thing you know, out of nowhere, like in an instant, this little puppy just whoop, slips out and you should have seen my dog was like, what is the, she was <laughs> tripping. She was, what? She's going spinning in a circle. And I, and I'm, I'm just as scared. I'm spinning in the circles. Like, what do I do? Like, you know, I got my gloves on and I'm hanging underneath her trying to catch this thing. I'm like, do I pull it? No, I don't pull it. Like, what do I do? And finally it comes out and I got this little amazing puppy formed in my hands. It was the most glorious thing. And she knew right away what to do. She turns around. She starts chewing off the umbilical cord, just like it said they would do. And this dog, she starts getting everything off of it, licking his nostrils, his mouth, clearing it out. I'm watching this happen. It was a glorious moment. And then I'm thinking, I'm going to wipe it off now because I was told, you know, wipe it off with a towel. And so I got a little towel there. She walks up, first puppy to come out. She takes her little paws. It's a Doberman, big paws. And she starts taking her paws, first puppy out, and she throws the towel on the puppy. I uncover it. She throws it back on to cover the puppy to keep it warm. Glorious. That God who speaks and dogs come into existence that do that, this is the same God who says this Messiah is going to reign over all of history, his increase of his government, there'll be no end and no end to its peace. And you want to know how it's going to happen? It's the zeal of that God that's going to make it happen. So if you look at the world and you think, I don't know how we're going to do this. We're getting beat up on all sides. We're going to be defeated. Let me just say this. Ready? History has already been won. All that's up, all that's happening right now, there's little skirmishes where people just haven't figured it out yet. All right. So that was Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Next one is Daniel 7, verse 13, uh, verses 13 through 14. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. That's to the right. And this is really important. This is written around the time of the Babylonian exile. And listen, for those of you guys that don't understand when that was, you need to know that about 600 years before Jesus arrived in history, about 600 years before, the Jews were taken into captivity to a place called Babylon, where there's a guy named Nebuchadnezzar as king. The book of Daniel is written in that kind of context. Now listen closely. There's a prophecy in Daniel. There's lots in Daniel, by the way. But this one in particular in Daniel 7 is pretty cool. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, Daniel gives a promise of this son of man. Look, at, look closely at it. It says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, God's coming many times in the Old Testament was cloud coming. He guided Israel by cloud. In Isaiah 19, 1, it says that God rides in a cloud, a cloud swiftly against Egypt and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. Cloud comings is a very, it's a very clear sign in the Old Testament of God's coming on clouds. It says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Question, what was Jesus' favorite title? Son of man. It says, one like a son of man. 
and he came to the, up to the ancient of days. Question? Very important. Which direction of that? He came up. You got to get this with me, guys. Very important. If you get it, you'll have it. He came up to the ancient of days. And ready? And was presented before him. And to him, this son of man, was given a dominion, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. And now ready? I'm going to fast forward, move the tape forward. Are you ready? Jesus at his ascension. What does he say before he goes? You already know. All authority where? In heaven and where? On earth has been given to me. Therefore go and what? Make disciples what? Of all nations. Question, which direction did Jesus go? Do you get it? What does Jesus say before he leaves? Go get my people. Go get all the nations. And then he's up. What did Daniel say was going to happen with the Messiah? Exactly that. A couple verses to write down to show you some more victory. Micah 5, 2 through 4. I'm going to go fast here. I'm not going to read through these with you guys. Or Habakkuk, however you want to pronounce it. 2.14. Zechariah 9, 9-10. Zechariah 14.9. Malachi 1.11. And now... This is important. Okay, think about this for a second. You read some psalm. Which psalm was that earlier? 92. 92? Do you listen to the language of that? Do you listen to the language about God? What, what did it say in Psalm 92? How about he makes us cedars? Right? What's it say? Give me some of that, Psalm 92. Oh, stop. Do you know you have fruit and sap? You're like a cedar of Lebanon. You're like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Sounds cool, though. Do you notice this language of the Bible? It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere at all times. This poetic imagery that's supposed to draw up all of these different images of something. And it's amazing because, watch this, ready? People will say, well, do you inter interpret the Bible literally? spiritually, and I'm going to say that's a false dichotomy because in certain places you have to interpret it what? Literally, because it's historical narrative or it's a literal thing. Like Jesus died on a cross, really died, really rose physically. They ate with him. He held them. That's literal. That's narrative. You get it. It's literal. But guess what? You cannot say, I interpret the Bible. If you do, if you say, I interpret the Bible literally, then where's your sap? Can I have some of your fruit? Where's it at? You keep it in your pocket somewhere? Get what I'm saying? If you interpret it literally, you're going to have a problem. Like, you'd be looking for a chick named Wisdom. Crying out in the streets. Where's she at? And what's she saying anyways? If you interpret it only literally, because you hear about locusts with men's faces. Now that's crazy. I don't like bugs, but I would not like that kind of bug. You're going to be looking for a whore. A harlot, the Bible says, of Babylon, riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. 
drinking blood, wearing purple and scarlet. And you're going to have to ask the question, where do I find her? <laughs> or avoid her? Probably on Craigslist, I'm just saying. <laughs> and so you're going to have to say, listen, it's not a question of interpreting the Bible literally or spiritually. It's this question, ready? Are you going to interpret it originally? In other words, you're just going to try to be creative and make it up? You're going to attempt to be original? Or you're going to interpret it, ready, biblically. In other words, when you look in the Bible, you'll look at these images that God uses, and you'll say, what is he saying when he says that? Like, for example, consider the imagery. Ready? You all know this. Ready? Kids, you know this too. Ready? Jesus is the Lamb of God. Lamb of God. You do not ever, when you hear that, think literally Jesus has a coat of fur. They have fur, right? Wool, sorry. Wool. Wool. You don't think, oh, that means he's really nice, like a lamb. No, you understand the imagery from the Old Testament sacrifice, amen? You get that. The, you, and also another example, uh, it says that our God is a consuming fire. Really? Like literally? Like a blast furnace? Like that kind of consuming fire? Or how about when Jesus says, I'm the door? You don't start going, where's the doorknob? You know exactly what he's saying and you get the language and you interpret it biblically. Or how about this in Psalm 23, famous passage for a lot of us. Psalm 23, what does it say? The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down, what? In green pastures. He leads me behind what? By the, by the still waters. Nobody really thinks that God has a rod and staff he's knocking you about with pushing you to still water. You know what it means, don't you? You know exactly what that imagery means, and you don't go into it with a hyper-literalist interpretation. You let the Bible speak for itself and interpret itself. Or how about this? Jesus called the leadership in Jerusalem, Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs. He says, you guys, you're like, um, like a, a, a tomb where they put people's dead bodies with that stinking, rotting flesh. You're like that with the stone over it, painted white. Looks good on the outside, but you stink of dead men's flesh. Jesus says whitewashed tombs. How about this? Again, woman called wisdom in Proverbs 8. A woman riding a beast in Revelation 17. Consider the types that you already know about. This is important. Consider the types. For example, you start reading the Old Testament after reading the new, and you're like, oh, it's awesome. And you read the old, and you're like, I'm going to read through the old. And you get to Leviticus, and you start tripping out. You're like, what's the priest situation? What's the killing of animals? What's the laying of hands on goats? What's the scapegoat for? What's all this stuff for? And it messes with you, because you're like, how does all this fit together? And what we have to understand is those were types of what was to come. In other words, question, do you want to go back to killing sheep? Do you want to go back to a temple, a literal temple with a veil with the Holy of Holies to have a priest go before you. Do you want to go back? The point is, is we all understand that those things were types and shadows of something better, something bigger, something beyond. It was more beautiful, more glorious. The animal sacrifice meant something, but it was pointing to something bigger and more eternal and something that had foundations built by God that would not pass away. Do you know what stunk about the priesthood of the Old Testament? 
the guy was a sinner like you, that's kind of a problem. He's going to die one day. That's also a problem. And he had to constantly make new sacrifice all the time. And Yom Kippur was the Day of Atonement. He's going to make this big sacrifice once a year. It's a pretty big deal. It's like every year someone's reminding you that you're a sinner and you're lost and you're separated from God. But did the temple mean something? Yes. Did the priesthood mean something? Yes. Did the animal sacrifices mean something? Yes. Whom did they point to? To Jesus. Think about this. Ready? Animal sacrifices. What was that? A type of what was to come. Think about this. The temple. What was that? A type of what was to come. And you might say this. Ready? You might say this. You might say, what was the temple a type of to come? And you already know it. Jesus says to the Jews of his day, what does he say to them? He says, destroy what? This temple and in three days, what? I will raise it up. And what were they thinking? They were like, the temple? That's been, that took us like, like decades to build. What are, you, what are you talking about? And it says, what about Jesus? He was referring to what, guys? The temple of his body. Guess what, guys? Something greater than the temple is here. That old temple is gone, and I want to say praise God. And if ready, a Jew today laid a cornerstone for the temple and built up another temple, do you know what they'd be saying to Jesus? You are not the Messiah. We need more sacrifices. You are not king. No Christian should ever get behind that. Because guess what? We have the promised temple of the new covenant, and that's Jesus. How about this? Jesus was, there was a foreshadow in the Old Testament of the Melchizedek priesthood, the, the, the highest priesthood that was going to last forever. That's Jesus. Leviticus 16, the priest would go and lay his hands on the goats. One would die, one he would confess the sins of the people onto, and they would separate it from the people. All that pointed to Christ. How about Abraham offering his son? You guys know that one? Abraham offered his son in Genesis. And what happens? In Genesis, he offers his son. Think through the, the implications, guys. Kids, imagine your dad goes to offer you to God to kill you. Now you're awake. Okay. <laughs> God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son of you love. This is the son that God promised to bless the whole world through, mind you. He says, this is the son I'm to bless the whole world through. Take him and offer him as a sacrifice on the place that I tell you, Moriah. It's a, ready? Three-day journey to get there. He takes his son, the son of his love, his only son. And then Isaac, his son, the son of his love, his only son, carries the wood to the place of the sacrifice. He goes up and Isaac asks his dad a question. He says, dad, I see the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? What's the question? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb, my son, for the offering. What did Abraham tell his son, his only son, who carried the wood to that specific place? What did he tell him? God will provide for himself the lamb. And then Abraham takes his and he binds him and he, the one of it, the promise, the son of his love. And God says, the angel Lord says, do not do anything to him or hurt the lad. He says, basically, this isn't going to happen. And then what's he do? They find a ram caught in a thicket. A what? A ram, not a what? A lamb. And then Abraham says, this is the place the Lord will provide it. And it was about 2,000 years later that ready God's son, the son of his love, his only son, carried the wood to the place of the sacrifice. And it was on that mountain 
that it happened where God provided the lamb as promised. Do you see the foreshadows, the types of what was to come? Now watch this. Go to Galatians 4 real briefly. This is going to get really exciting here. Galatians 4. Galatians chapter 4, New Testament book. I want to show you and, and, and suggest you to consider this type. This is very important. Galatians chapter 4, consider this type. Look how Paul interprets an event in history. Now, to get you a little background as you get there, I'm going to tell you there's a guy named Abraham. Kids, you know the song you sing about Father Abraham had many sons? Okay. Abraham was the guy that God called to himself and he promised that he was going to bless the whole world through Abraham. He made a covenant with him. Abraham did nothing. He just believed God and God credited to him righteousness. Now watch this. Abraham did something wrong. They didn't fully trust God that he'd keep his promise. They didn't fully really believe it. So Sarah jumps the gun and says, hey, we've got to have a child. Take this, take Hagar have a baby with her as my concubine, and we'll have a child. And so they had a, a child named what? Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was not the son that God promised him, but God did bless Ishmael. But God says, no, no, it's going to be through Sarah, and it's going to be Isaac. And so what happens is, ready? Watch this. Hagar was a slave. She had a son named what? Ishmael. Now, Sarah was a free woman, and she had a son named what? Isaac, I need you to see this. Ready? There's two here. Hagar, slave. Sarah, free. Son of the promise. Now listen, first century. Capture this for a second. Listen closely. Put yourself in the mindset of an early Jewish Christian. You're in the first century. Jesus died and rose again. And you're telling everybody, hey, it's done. It's seriously finished. Like he's the king. He's Messiah. He died and rose again. You don't need to offer animal sacrifices anymore. Come to the Messiah. There's forgiveness and peace. And you got these Jews over here that are going, I'm sorry, who's king? Who? Yeshua's king. He's king. He's Messiah. You mean the guy that was crucified as a common criminal? The guy that was killed by Pontius Pilate? That guy? He's king over what? What? What's he king over? You just you need to get, abandon this crazy thing, this cult you're in right now, this weird little cult you're in. You need to abandon it. You need to come home. You need to come back to the priesthood. You need to come back to the temple. You got to come back to the animal sacrifices, guys. Come back home. Get out of this cult. That's what they went through. And the Christians are going, no, for real. He was the lamb of God. He was the perfect sacrifice. He's alive. We actually touched him and ate with him. He's alive. And guys, he says, before we all die, he says, before we all die, this temple's going to be destroyed. There won't be one stone left upon another. That's what they were telling the first century Jewish people who rejected Jesus. That's the context. Ready? Now breathe that in and now go to the text. Galatians 4. Paul says this. Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, see, there's temptation to go back to the old covenant. And what he says, 421. Those of you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born according to the impulse of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things are illustrations for the woman represents, the women represent the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai 
and bears children into slavery, this is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Now, this is important, very important, and this is cool. What's he saying? The present Jerusalem is in slavery? Like with Benjamin Netanyahu, that one? Who is he talking about? The Jerusalem of what? The first century. Now, follow me here, guys. This is very important. He says the present Jerusalem corresponds to Hagar, the slave woman's child. And they are in bondage and in slavery presently. He says this, ready? But the Jerusalem above is free. You got a story here, ready? Of two Jerusalems. One's enslaved and one is the Jerusalem that is... And question, this is... The Jerusalem above is free. Where does Paul place the Jerusalem? Where? Where? Above. Don't be afraid. I'm going to hurt you, okay? Above. Above. This is important. Watch this. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman who does not give birth. Burst into song and shout for you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate are many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You get it? Watch. Father Abraham had Isaac. That was the son of the promise, which goes to Jesus, which goes to whom? You. He says, you guys are not sons of the slave woman. You are sons of the free. You are from the Jerusalem that is above. And so he says, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as then the child born according to the flesh persecuted the one according to the spirit. So also now, and this is awesome. He says, watch this. These two covenants are represented by two women. One's a slave, slave child. One's a free, free child. And he says this, he says, just like when Hagar had this child and Sarah had this one, just as the one persecuted the other then, he says, so it is now. He said, remember how? The child of Hagar persecuted Isaac. He said, that's what's happening now. The old covenant people, the old Jerusalem is persecuting the new Jerusalem, the one that's from above. But watch what is being said before the fall of Jerusalem in the first century. He says, but what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free What's the promise there? What's insinuated there? That this slave be driven out because she's not an, it's not an heir. I should say, drive out the slave and her son. He says this, very important, watch this. In his moment, that earthly Jerusalem, those Jews were persecuting the Jewish Christians. And he's like, guys, they're in bondage. He says, but we are the children of, this, of the Jerusalems from above. He says, but guess what God's about to do? He's about to drive out that one. And this is shortly before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when it actually happened. And I'm going to end with this to whet your appetite for next week because I want you to come back. It's going to get amazing. Are you ready? Question. This was a story of two what? Give it to me. Galatians 4. Two what? What's that? Two brothers? 
to what else? To women. To what else? To covenants. Very good. To Jerusalems. To what? Jerusalems. And where was the location, according to Paul, of the Jerusalem that we're a part of? And what did he say was about to happen to that old Jerusalem that was in slavery? It was about to be what? Driven out. Now I want you to think for a second about the book of Revelation. First century, early Christians who were Jewish are being persecuted by the Jews who reject the Messiah. And I told you something already. You already caught it. I already said it and we said it jokingly. But I told you about a harlot, a whore, riding a beast with seven heads and ten horns. I told you about Revelation when he talks about a woman wearing purple and scarlet, drinking blood with Babylon written on her forehead, and she's in the desert, the wilderness. She's riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. And then in Revelation 17, John, in this vision of this woman, he says, but that beast she's riding is going to turn on her, make her desolate, burn her with fire. And then it says that the woman you saw is the great city. Do a word study in Revelation, and guess what? Every single time you see the words great city, who's it referring to? Jerusalem. In Revelation, you've got a story, a tale of two cities. A tale of two cities. One is a harlot wearing the priest's colors, temple and scar- uh, purple and scarlet, existing in the wilderness. Where were the Jews when they were, in, when they were uh, disobedient to, the, to God in the wilderness? For how many years? Are you getting the images now? What does the woman have on her forehead? Babylon. Was Babylon a good place for the Jews or a bad place for the Jews? A bad place. Why were they in Babylon? Because of their sin. Are you getting the picture here? It's a harlot in the wilderness with Babylon on her head, wearing the priest's colors, drinking the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. And Jesus says in the first century, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Are you getting the picture now? And it says that she's riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Rome is the Septimanium, the, t- the, the, the city of seven hills, riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. You say, why is Jerusalem riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast? Ready? Pontius Pilate says, before the crowds, he says, shall I crucify your king? And the Jews of the first century say what to Pontius Pilate? We have no king but... Caesar, the harlot riding the beast. But the first century Christians who had turned to Christ, who were Jewish and were like, hey, we're Jews and we're following Jewish Messiah, were being persecuted by the first century Jews who rejected Messiah. And John's telling them, hang on, he is coming quickly. He's coming quickly. Hang on. He's coming. Every eye is going to see him, including those who pierced him. Did you catch that? And watch what happens. John says that that beast that she's riding is about to make her desolate and burn it with fire. Did you guys know that within six years of John's writing Revelation, Rome turned on Israel, destroyed the city, set it on fire, destroyed the temple. Did you know that happened? Revelation's a story, ready, of two cities. One, ready, and I'm going to use biblical terminology, not abusive. One is a whore who is a bride, but goes off and just starts doing with other nations what they're doing. 
And God called Israel in the Old Testament a harlot. He says, you're, like, you're not like other harlots. You're different than other harlots, but you're a harlot. Now, what's glorious is this. Turn to Revelation 21. And we're going to end on this. And I hope this whets your appetite and gets you so excited for what's to come because it is glorious. And this is the last thing we're doing. Revelation 21, tale of two cities. The Jerusalem that is referred to as a harlot. And now watch, John gets another vision and you have to understand the imagery. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to talk about that next week. When was that to come? That it had to come in the first century and what all that means. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, then a loud voice from the throne. Now, interestingly, do you notice something? 17, you got this one woman who's called a harlot that's made desolate and destroyed. One says, and then I saw holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Question, when Paul gave his story of the two women, the two covenants, he said, one's a slave, present Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem that is where? Above is free, and that's our mother. Watch this. Before this was written, Paul said, the Jerusalem above is free. Now, in this, in this revelation, watch this. Where is this new Jerusalem coming from? Out of heaven from God. Do you see that? And you might be thinking here, the new Jerusalem, it's already here? Let me ask you a question. Are you the bride of Christ? Are we the bride of Christ? Read the text. I also saw, verse 2, the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. I want you to think for a moment about this. Watch what it says. In verse 10, He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And He says, Come, I will show you the bride, the new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem was destroyed, Amen. And you and I are the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. Do you get it? Do you see the significance? The old Jerusalem is destroyed. The new Jerusalem is the people of God. And you might say, really? Really? Like already? And to get you to what's behind this, go to Hebrews 11. Actually, 12. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not one, uh, not another word to be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And even if an, in, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Now, ready? You don't need to be worried about a full understanding of this. It's simple. 
What's he referring to? The writer of Hebrews before the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century is saying this. We're not doing like the Old Testament was where even Moses was terrified. That mountain was terrifying where God got, gave the law to Moses. But what did he say? 22, instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Wait a minute. The writer of Hebrews uses that in a past tense. You have come. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Make sure that you do not reject the one who speaks For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Watch this. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And watch. What is the writer of Hebrews referring to when he refers to the shaking of the heavens and the earth? This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. How awesome is this? In Hebrews, before the fall of Jerusalem, guys, the writer of Hebrews is telling them, guys, you've come to the real heavenly city, to the new Jerusalem, whose builder and foundations are from God. And he says what to them? He says, God is about to shake and remove these things. What things? What's he referring to? To the old covenant sacrificial system and foreshadowing things. He says, God's going to shake those things. He's going to remove them so that the things that cannot be shaken would remain since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do you get the point? God is promising there before the fall of Jerusalem that God was about to destroy all of the old remnants of the old covenants so that we who are his kingdom, which cannot be shaken, would remain. And I have a question for you. In the first century, the Jews who rejected the Messiah were persecuted in the early Christians who were Jewish. Well, here's the question. When that Jerusalem was destroyed with fire and burnt to the ground, Who is left? When that kingdom, that Jerusalem was destroyed and it was smoldering in ashes and smoke, who was left remaining? The kingdom of God. The Christians. Mustard seed to large tree. Do you you see the picture there that God was going to destroy all of the foreshadows and pictures pointing towards Messiah and his kingdom to leave the true spiritual reality to last forever. You believers today, can I ask you a question? Is God dwelling in you now? So when the new Jerusalem refers to God dwelling within his people, he'll be their God, they'll be his people. Is that true of you now? When it talks about rivers of life coming out of the new Jerusalem and people are invited from the new Jerusalem, isn't it strange? We've put the new Jerusalem only to future, by the way, ready? The new Jerusalem and the new heavens, new earth has implications for the future. There's no question. But the question is, 
This bride, who's a city called the New Jerusalem, is inviting people in Revelation to come drink from the water. Now, question, if that's future, who are we talking to? If that's in heaven, who are we talking to? Why is an invitation coming out from the New Jerusalem in Revelation to tell people to come drink of the water of life? And I have a question for you, believer. Ready? If Revelation, the New Jerusalem, the rivers of life flowing out of the New Jerusalem is only future like heaven one day, then what are we to do with Jesus' statements of the woman at the well? In John chapter 4, which Steve brought up this week in our group, where Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will have springs welling up in him to eternal life. Have you taken from the water of life? You can answer that. Have you taken from the water of life? So the reality of the new Jerusalem is something you already know and have experienced. Do you see it? That old Jerusalem is destroyed. All the types and shadows that are pointed to Jesus destroyed. Everything promised has arrived, and now it's a matter of growth and fulfillment till final victory. Of course, there are unanswered questions, and there should be. I need to ask those questions, but these realities are true, and they are beautiful, and they are amazing, and what we're going to do next time is this. I'm going to take you to Isaiah and to Daniel to show you that the promises were for a specific time. Did you when the Messiah would accomplish this? Exactly when? We're going to see that next week, guys. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you, Lord, for tonight and the time we've had in your word. I pray you bless us, God, as we continue this series. I know that there's so much here, Lord God, by way of the symbolism and the imagery and the sheer magnitude and size of all this, God, that it it should compel us, Lord. It should cause us to desire to come to your word, to understand it better, to understand you more and to see the real glory of Christ. I pray you bless us, Lord, as we study this, continue this, Lord. Bless us this week as we study and look through these things. And I pray that you lift up our hearts and our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.